Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, January 19th, 2010. Welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest tonight is Yang Zhao, the author of Catching Up or Leading the Way. Welcome, Yang. Oh, thank you, Steve. Really, really appreciate your being here. Appreciate the enthusiasm with which you've accepted the invitation. So I'm going to do a brief introduction about uh, the series and the environment that we're in. Uh, Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, um, Illuminate, and my special project at Illuminate is called Learn Central. It's a socially a social educational network uh, for educators, uh, Facebook-like in scope. Uh, with Illuminate baked in and easy content sharing. Hope you'll come and uh, visit that free site and service and um, see if we can't make a difference for you. Coming up on conversations.net and future of education tomorrow night, Dave Eddyburn is going to talk about assistive technology. Uh, Thursday, Martin Bauerlein, the author of The Dumbest Generation. Should be a great show. Uh, January 26th, uh, Michael Horn is back on the InnoSight series, The Disrupting Class. Uh, fellow, uh, Voice Academy Case Study. On January 27th, Dan Coyle on the Talent Code. January 29th to the 31st, we're going to be broadcasting the sessions of EDUCON. So look for that. Um, I think in total, some 30 or 40 sessions during that weekend. February 2nd, Tara Hunt on the Wolfie Factor. James Paul G. on Video Games, February 3rd. Shell Israel on the 4th. Lisa Gillis on Online High School, February 9th, Larry Johnson, Clay Shirky, Dave Simon Garland, Dan Pink on February 17th, Scott Rosenberg on March 2nd, Sharon Peters, Tony Wagner, and lots more coming up. So I sure appreciate your being here and uh, hope you'll join us on a future session. Special thanks to Charlene Bloom and C. Bloom and Associates for my book budget. Started the new year with a book budget from them and sure appreciate that. And of course, thanks to Illuminate. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I do want you to know how to participate in this kind of an interactive environment. I'm going to give myself um, a little hand here so you can see what I'm pointing at. This is the participant window. And this is where you can see other participants. And at the bottom of the participant window, you have some emoticons, a smiley face, a clapping hand, a thumbs down, and a, and a confused look face. You can use those to indicate um, a response during the show. You can also raise your hand if you want to ask a question. Usually we save that toward the end. But that hand with the green up arrow allows you to raise your hand. And then if you want to take the microphone, you can ask you on a question directly through the mic. If you think you might want to do that, do be sure to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to test your microphone. This is the message box area. You're welcome to leave a message in here. Although it does appear that you can send a private message, do know that uh, both Dr. Zhao and I will see that um, because we're moderators in the session. It does come through to us. Um, and then when you do get ready to take the microphone, if you would like to do that, there is a talk button down at the bottom of the screen. And I'll talk you through that at the time. Over here is the whiteboard, which I'm going to give you a chance to use right now. And if you would click to the left of the whiteboard, You'll see a little wand with a red star at the end. Use that to click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. You can shout out in the chat as well. Fun to hear about weather, time, location. You know, I thought about this particular show, Young, because it is uh, sort of American-centric, although I think the theme mm -hmm. is much more universal. But I, I suspected we would get more of an American audience tonight, which looks to be the case. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, we have people from Canada. You guys, you can see they are there. At, at, you know, that's very nice to have people from Canada. I we was do. actually in Vancouver, BC, uh, to a couple of days ago. Welcome, everybody. We are definitely sure and glad to have you here. Okay, so this is a special treat uh, for me, especially I, I spent a good portion of my day today with this book and, and really loved it. Uh, and I'm going to admit that I think I fell into a trap. I ordered the book, you know, maybe a month or six weeks ago and had received it and it was sitting on my desk. And I, I think I fell into a trap and, I'm, and I prejudged the book maybe a little unfairly. And, and we'll talk about that as we move forward. But I think there's a very uh, nuanced and thoughtful perspective that you bring to this situation. Can I get you to tell a little bit about your own personal background? Because I think it's a big part of the story. Um, where you were born, um, what your education and upbringing were like, and then when you came to the States? Oh, yeah, sure. I think, uh, well, first, uh, thanks, Steve, for, for having me. And thanks, for everybody, for, for joining uh, us. I think. Uh, some of you may be giving up your dinner or feel free to eat your dinner, uh, whatever you're doing. <laughs> and uh, the, um, well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I was born in a, in, in a village. Actually, this uh, last uh, month, I had the chance to visit the village again. Um, so uh, I try to go back there every, um, every year. They, uh, I was born in a village, and um, the village, we, we really didn't have much uh, education there. I, I said, you know, when I was uh, really, uh in first grade, I would have surpassed the whole village as a whole total literacy, you know, I think, uh, ability. And, uh, but, uh, so I went through uh, the school system and um, then I went to college in a different place. And uh, then, of course, later on, I became a teacher in China uh, and came to the U.S. and went to graduate school in the U.S. And I think uh, what what struck me interesting is in in my village is that uh, uh, I was practically the one who was the I would say the, the outsider the, the the person who did not follow the majority of the people there and uh, who uh, you know went into education but went into education rather it's not really I don't think at that time I was deliberately saying that I would you know get on a show with Steve <laughs> or come to the U.S. or what, what was important in my life at that time is uh, I think I chose something that uh, I was better at, I was than others, and but uh, always trying to avoid what I wasn't good at uh, because in the, in the village I was not particularly uh, strong or tall and uh, what I had was perhaps some intellectual muscles rather than physical muscles or the physical muscles were more uh, approved, I mean, uh, uh, quite appreciated. So in that sense, I think I was uh, building on my strength. I was discovering my strength, my own strength. And for that, I think I shared that in my book about how do we should we, we should be building our strength, not trying to standardize, trying to be the same as others, or trying to compete with others in the same domain. Uh, and another area is that I think I had a, uh, I was in, in a way fortunate uh, uh, to have um, a father who. I, I told the story many times that uh, uh, who was uh, you know making noodles and was able to bring me a lot of books because he was using noodles uh, those books to the paper to wrap the noodles and I was able to read those books and of course those books were not pre-selected not prejudged but it's really a wide range uh, of things and so uh, I think uh, that's very important and uh, around the same time uh, when I was in school. My sister-in-law, I mean my brother-in-law, actually, the fiance of my my sister was also 
stationed as an army in, in a uh, Chinese army and uh, was far away. So to me, that represents the outside. I mean, uh, that and those books represent a different place I could get to. So it, I think for me, what's important is the strength. It's an aspiration of trying to see what's possible outside and beyond those mountains of my village. So you didn't really start out writing a book about education in America, right? No, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, I was writing more work. I'm trying to work on a book about China. I, I know, as uh, I think I, I said in in the preface of uh, of the book, is that I was trying to write a book about China because I saw so much um, misinformation, uh, misinterpretation at least of the uh, Chinese education system in the U.S. And I thought I was trying to say this in a record straight. So I was working on a book about China, Chinese education. Right, and and I think part of what makes your background so unique and interesting is that, uh, and, and this is I think larger the story of the book is that you talk about China wanting what we're eager to throw away, and we're wanting mm -hmm. to to model ourselves after what we see as um, China's dominance uh, educationally, and, and and in there is the story, the, the story of why mm -hmm. you want us to be careful uh, because you. I think, as you say, if you had been born a year later, your life would have been different because the testing would have substantially impacted mm -hmm. you, right? Oh, definitely. I think that it's quite clear in a sense. I don't think you know necessarily U.S. is is deliberate or not, but what the U.S. is trying to do is very much what China has been trying to abandon. Actually, not only China but other countries in East Asia. Uh, area like Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, and all, all of those are trying to move away, which in essence is a centralized uh, system, which they have centralized uh, testing, centralized uh, standards, curriculum. And if you look at the U.S. education right now with uh, race to the top and no child behind, and all those things are in essence focused on more centralization, more standardization. And to me, my personal story was that um, uh, I was basically lucky enough in 1982, that's the last year, uh, the Chinese government uh, would uh, allow those people who want to major in foreign languages, most in English, uh, to uh, not take the math test, or rather the math test scores would not count as part of the college entrance exam. And I was just lucky enough because my math was not good. And neither was my English, actually, because I was uh, in a rural high school that was not really much English taught. But however, math was so bad, and I thought I can make up in other areas. And I avoided the math test, so I got into college. Uh, so if a year later, uh, math would have been counted towards the total, because they're looking for a more balanced person uh, in that sense. But then my math would not probably, and I would not be in college, and then I would be uh, riding a water buffalo somewhere in my village now. You know, I think that was a very powerful part of the book for me. So Maureen's saying that she's wondering, she doesn't think that China's necessarily moving away from standardized testing. I got the impression from the book that you you definitely saw a, a move right now in China as part of transforming their economy to move away from the test orientation to more of a talent orientation. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think the, uh, I should say this. The, you know, there's also the, the the attempts and the efforts. The government has definitely try, been trying to move away from uh, 
standardized testing and they tried that many times and now they are even allowing universities to experiment on admitting students in addition or in lieu of standardized testing but that has not been successful so I don't know what Maureen was saying is whether that is about the reality I think that's actually what I worry so much about because once a system a society adopts uh, one type of uh, uh, index uh, indicators or one criteria to judge the value of a student or the quality of a teacher, then we, it will be very hard to, to turn around because I think in China people have developed this trust in test scores as the only objective indicator, uh, then they, it's very, anything else where they will think uh, it will lead to corruption. So, so there are the government has been trying very hard, but it's proven to be very difficult. So I, um, I'd like to, uh, to give you uh, quickly what I thought was the outline of the book and for you to tell me if you think I got it right. So mm -hmm. I, I saw that the book had uh, sort of four main parts or messages. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll list them and then you tell me if you think I'm on the right track. The first was that our logic behind believing that there's a crisis is flawed. The second mm -hmm. is that our reforms are actually putting us in real danger. Mm -hmm. The third is that it's not that we don't need to improve our educational system, but that we're moving in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth was that we're at a crossroads and, and we need to um, to do everything we can to move toward uh, building on our strengths and, and you're, I think, hoping in the book to help us recognize what those strengths are. Is that a fair assessment of the book? Yeah, absolutely. I think, Steve, you, you, well, you did read the book, <laughs> so, uh, so you've, uh, you've done that very well. Yes, I, I think uh, the, uh, uh, right now, I think the crisis uh, talk that you know, I, guess I wrote in the, in the historical, it's been there for a long time, in the U.S., Education is in crisis. I think they look at the wrong indicators. Uh, if I mean, there. If you look at test scores, uh, I, mean, I I do not want to try to get in, into the debate about whether we have a better, you know, our students uh, uh, something. If there's something error in terms of testing or other things, I mean, there is a gap in terms of test scores or in terms of how uh, our students spend time. I mean. Uh, in, in, uh, in their life, you know, whether in school, out of school, and there is a gap, but whether those are good indicators, or well, it comes back to say, uh, what is the true education about? Uh, so I, I think if you look at um, some of the subject areas, you may see the gap, but I think as overall, uh, this crisis may actually be overrated, and uh, but what is going to put us in danger is actually our attempts to solve the, uh, you know, the misperceived crisis, the so-called crisis. So I think, in essence, we are lured in the wrong way. Uh, we are trying to solve what I would call the problems of the past or the problem uh, that does not need to be solved. Uh, so that leads to really the, the, the third one, that is uh, uh, we have issues, the U.S. education, which, as I described in this one, at least is trying to uh, help our children to become more globally minded and also to be uh, more understanding to enter the digital and virtual world, that's more important. So those things together, I was saying that to be globally competitive or to be you know, globally collaborative with people from other places, 
our education needs to add much more in the other areas, needs to expand and take advantage of what the U.S. education system is endowed. Therefore, we should be building our strength, and our strength lies in our general education philosophy in the ethos of our teaching profession, as well as uh, the general material, you know, technological wealth we have. And so to not, we should not limit our education, our definition of education to, in essence, instruction of subject matter knowledge only. So that's, I think, you, yeah, you, you've, uh, you've done very well uh, in summarizing that book. Well, so one of the, the stories that you tell in the book is that um, or one of the statements that I pulled out as a quote was that it's not that U.S. schools teach creativity any better. It's that our schools mm -hmm. kill creativity less. Mm -hmm. or, or maybe I heard you say that in a talk. But Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, and you tell the story of the talent show and just mm -hmm. how kind of an important uh, an image that is for you of what's right in how we approach education. Do you, can, you, can you kind mm -hmm. of go over that? Yeah, I think the, the, the caring creativity less part is really comes to, you know, my, my psychological background. I, I really don't believe any people, uh, you know, any one group of people from any country location uh, are born with more creativity or less creativity. And I also believe that schools, by necessity, have to force uh, students to conform to certain rules, which is actually necessary, because as the world prepare citizens, we have to adopt a certain common ground, certain common understanding. But at the same time, it's, I think the degree to which you do that uh, matters, because creativity, as I understand it, is, is really a desire, is the ability to be different, to be different from your peers or to be different historically, in that sense. So when you force people to conform, they sacrifice certain levels of creativity or to, be devi to deviate, the ability to deviate from others. So I think the U.S. education system has uh, generated a broader uh, uh, definition of what success is and also has multiple uh, criteria to judge, again, the value of individuals and the value of, uh, of certain uh, talents, uh, certain abilities more than other places, which is, again, look at the school talent shows is a great example that uh, allows a diversity of talents, of different types of, uh, of abilities, skills, knowledge to be valued, to be celebrated. And that's very, very rare in other places. So I think, in, in, I don't think in the U.S., if you go to U.S. classroom schools, I don't think necessarily we teach creativity a lot more, more explicitly. And in many ways, I think creativity may not even be able to, may not even be taught, uh, actually cannot be taught maybe. So what we, we, do, we do in the U.S. is to have created an environment uh, that uh, accepts multiple criteria uh, to judge people, and that way we have preserved more creativity and more diversity of talents. Does it make sense? It does to me, and 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 I'm going to give a little bit of backstory as well. I think because you tell this, you talk about how we've heard for 40 years about our failings. And that this mm -hmm. is, you know, maybe a fairly easy political message, and it and it allows for people to act in certain ways. But for 40 years, we've sort of said, you know, we're, that our schools are in crisis and that we're not doing well. And yet, at the same time, in those 40 years, you say we've developed some of the most significant historical advances in the history of the world, including the internet, which largely came from, um, you know, American ingenuity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think, you know, if, uh, <clears throat> you know, despite this uh, <clears throat> cry of crisis for 40 years, actually almost 50 years, and you look at uh, the uh, uh, the U.S. as a country, uh, I mean, despite of, you know, this recent global economic crisis, which, again, a lot of people suffer from this, is that the U.S. Uh, still maintains, uh, by most accounts, that uh, uh, an age in innovation uh, its capacity for technological advances and it has led, uh, I think, the globe, the world, on uh, many fronts, technologically and scientifically. And so that, I think, uh, itself uh, shows somehow, some way, the U.S. has the people, the experts, the talents to maintain that age, and it can still continue. And if we think education is uh, responsible for, for producing people who lead this, who participate in this. And that's actually not only, I'm not only talking about this, the Nobel laureates, I'm talking about a culture, an environment that would able to be able to support and allow the, to uh, breed uh, those kind of uh, special talents, those industry is quite rare. I think education is responsible for that uh, in many ways. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at, um, I'm, I'm taking China as an example, it's very clear China is, I mean, it's basically an economy built on cheap labor. Uh, I, I don't think uh, uh, you can credit China's fast growth I mean, in the, over the last decades to its education, uh, but actually its education uh, has more benefited from the, the growing economy because the economy was able to put some money back because China's, uh, most of China's uh, industry and the economy has to build on people who have not had much education. So in this crisis story that we tell, uh, one of the things you point out is that we, uh, we, we seem to blame the teachers and the leaders for the crisis. And so we believe that the solution is to hold educators more accountable. So mm -hmm. I think you do a good job of, of talking about why that's not accurate. Do you, would you want to drill down on that at all? Uh, yeah, sure. And I, I think that that's something which actually uh, um, shocked me. This is really funny uh, because one thing, actually my wife and I uh, discussed this a lot. Uh, you know, one thing, we, when we came to the U.S., uh, uh, was we were very impressed with how Americans in general trust each other more. You know, when you go to the, uh, the supermarket, you're not concerned about buying uh, you know, you're getting something fake or getting something poisonous, you know, uh, like tainted milk. I mean, in China, uh, I guess it's perhaps that, that that's the, uh, the, uh, what happens to most, uh, you know, emerging developing economies. You're constantly worried about those, those things that people, there's not much trust. In, in, in. And in the, U, uh, in the U.S., I, I arrived there, I thought, uh, you know, generally it's an honor system. We you know we don't try to, uh, you know, we trust everybody's doing their job. Everybody has some kind of work ethic, professionalism. And then uh, look at accountability measures. And you look at that, I found it's basically a strong signal that says that we don't trust you. Therefore, we have to hold you accountable. And uh, we want to measure your, your, your work and so that you will work harder. I mean, if you drill back this whole accountability issue, is that it's basically no. Uh, no or little trust of the public school uh, educators and uh, to tell them that if we uh, reward you or punish you and uh, you will do better, you'll work harder, 
and so that actually was quite shocking to me. I don't think that's very logical, <laughs> honestly, because if a person, uh, in any case, if that person can, you know, I think I guess the idea is that we are assuming the the unwilling, well, maybe the unable in certain conditions. So that's where I, I think the, the, it's very unfair and it's not very productive. Uh, if you look actually in other countries, in Finland, for example, uh, one of the things they credit uh, uh, their success was to the mutual trust of educators and uh, uh, the public, uh, um, how you have the faith in this workforce. And also the lack of trust, the so-called accountability, it has to become more bureaucratical uh, mechanism and actions which is actually driving away a lot of uh, talented and excellent teachers where we are in shortage of teachers. Well, I think you talk about this as being the real causes of <coughs> uh, achievement in schools. And I was reminded of uh, Clayton Christensen and Michael Horn's Disrupting Class because they talk about uh, certain cycles of achievement that take place in mm -hmm. school that are largely cultural because of the families and the background of the students rather than because of the school. And, and I mm -hmm. think what I heard you saying was there are a lot of factors here that relate to the success of students that are really not within the control of the teachers and the leaders. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, that really has to do with the, the, the current discussion about uh, the, the so-called failing schools, you know, the schools uh, that's been left behind the inner city schools, the uh, the poor rural schools, the school uh, schools in the, in the, in disadvantaged communities, and schools with high dropout rates. Uh, I think a lot of times right now our solution seems to be if we force teachers, if we hold teachers and the school leaders accountable, then they are going to turn the schools around uh, without realizing a lot of those problems, as you you are saying are very social, it comes from a student background. So in a way, when we try to think it's only the teacher's problem, we are, I think, uh, basically ignoring the real problem, a real problem from our children's background. You know, we, we have kids who don't really have a home to go back to. Uh, we have children who have no books at homes. Well, all those things, I think, uh, it, it, it's a much more complex issue than trying to hold a teacher accountable, force teachers to do things that may not even be attainable uh, in a school. Also, you look at uh, uh, the number of hours students have in schools versus what they have uh, in other places. So there are many uh, more factors uh, affecting uh, students dropping out, affecting the relative low performance of students in those schools. I think they need a, a very special attention rather than trying to centralize or standardize, which actually is another issue too. Uh, we tend to, uh, I mean, the U.S. has always thrived uh, as a place that trusts uh, local individual innovations. And now if we, we take the idea, say, okay, Chicago, or where I'm from, Detroit, uh, has many failing schools, and therefore we need to fix them, but we need to make a rule, make a law, or make certain, uh, take certain actions that's going to apply to the whole country. You know, that, that's, that's not never going to work. You know? so, so, so it's also affecting other places. You know, I think the problems you face in Northern California uh, is quite different from what you perhaps face in downtown Los Angeles in those areas. So I, I think uh, with the overall thing, the so-called accountability measure uh, is not going to work and uh, it's actually going to cause a lot of more damages when it's applied nationally.
The excuse me. The discussion reminded me a lot of sort of the things I hear about uh, prisons and how uh, because uh, asking for teachers to be held accountable uh, to me is a very easy message politically to state, mm -hmm. and it also has the surface appearance of equality. Mm -hmm. But as any parent with more than one child can tell you, uh, expecting the same end result from each child is not actually sometimes equitable. But mm -hmm. it seems like the, the, the idea of accountability has attractiveness both from a political standpoint and from the sense of uh, equi equality or equitability. Um, mm -hmm. So how do we, so uh, let me let me skip to the next step because I I want to make sure we get through the session here and there are some good there are some good comments in in the um, in the chat as well. Mm -hmm. What I hear you saying is that this this set of reforms that we are enacting are actually putting us in real danger. Mm -hmm. And here's the quote that I thought was was probably the one I'll remember the most from the book. Why are Americans who hold individual rights and liberty in the highest regard, why Americans who hold individual rights and liberty in the highest regard would allow the government to dictate what their children should learn, when they should learn it, and how they are evaluated? Mm -hmm. I didn't copy the whole quote out there, so I know that didn't fully make grammatical sense, but that was fascinating to me. Why we hold individual rights and liberty in such high regard, but why are we now feeling comfortable allowing the single dictation of what our children should learn. Have, have people responded to that particular quote, or do you find people understand that? Uh, not much, because that, that's especially dear to my heart. I'm glad you picked it up, because you know, for me, who lived in a communist you know, kind of dictatorship, uh, I came here, I think we, one thing we, we always, I think America has always been, was supposed to always be suspicious of the government, you know, and uh, uh, and, you know, we we hold it kind of, for example, gun rights, but so, so, so dear to our heart. And suddenly, uh, you know, why exactly why do we uh, give up our children to the government to de de to decide whether they're proficient this year or proficient next year in math or science and what they should learn? This actually really uh, baffles me uh, as as an immigrant. I mean, it's actually uh, very very troublesome to me because I think we're giving up, we're surrendering. Some of the most fundamental uh, basic rights that U.S. Constitution, the uh, U.S. is founded on. Uh, that's uh, and not many people have got that. I think because what you said before was, uh, uh, I think uh, somehow in this country, in the U.S., I mean, we have uh, come to this um, this view that uh, whole schools are accountable. You know, accountability requires measures. Mayors' measures have requires a standardized. And standardized requires common in order to compare, so to appear to be equitable or to be uh, equal. And at the same time, it's very politically, I guess, uh, I know, interesting and beneficial to say that uh, to solve the crisis, you know, when human beings are put in danger or when they are told to believe they're in danger, they're at risk, they tend to surrender to a you know, savior, to a protector. I think that's where they the fear that has generated among the American public that our schools are failing our students in competition with people from other countries. Therefore, I think the public has willingly surrendered the individual rights. Okay, so let's move toward the, the sort of the message of the book, which is what you think we can do. And um, 
you're, you're not saying that we don't need to improve our educational system, but that we need to make our education even more American and address the challenges mm -hmm. of our day. So I think the first thing you do is to say we need to expand the definitions of, our success, of success. So how would you mm -hmm. define success? Well, I think, you know, uh, um, number one, I think for the 21st century, as we were discussing by the book of the Long Tail, we need a lot more diverse, uh, uh, diverse talents. That means we need people who would be good in different areas. The 21st century, I think, is the century that we have reached the area of being uh, customization and personalization. So in essence, in many ways, what we can do uh, I know to help our school to provide individualized paths, pathways to our students, to have individualized support to our, you know, uh, each individual students, or to have individualized, personalized education for our students, that will be one of the indicators of success. So I would measure whether our schools truly support the discovery, the development of individual strength. That is, we are helping children to become uh, educated human beings, not trying to, instead of to standardize them into one area or two or three subjects, in that sense, as test takers. So I think diverse learning opportunities to measure the different types of educational opportunities that we afford to our students in our schools. Another area I think we need to really get into is uh, somehow we need to bring in the globalness into our schools. That is, our students need to develop a global perspective, need to understand themselves as part of a large human race, as not only a citizen of their respective state, the country, but really the globe, because our students will be working with people from other cultures, other countries, either locally or through telecommuting or through really actually migration in many different ways. And in the third area, I mean, like, so to measure that success, I would like to say, are our schools becoming more of a global context for our students to participate in? By that, I really don't mean, don't mean simply offering a course or studying the facts about other countries. I, I think actually it's more of a how do you develop globalness? You know, we, we talk about this uh, in general. So, you know, people in New York may be more cosmopolitan than other places. So, you know, people in California are more cosmopolitan. You know, this cosmopolitanism is very much like a globalism. And the third area I think we, we, we have to think about is how do, do we help our students become producers, manufacturers, makers, creators of the digital age? I think today, students, uh, you know this quite well, that technology in our schools a lot of times is not used to help develop our students' ability and talent and interest to live and lead in a digital age. Uh, that, so I would also measure in that way the success with our schools offering opportunities to match the transformed society in, in that way. And then you're coming back, you know, people always ask me, how do you measure all of those things. This, uh, I think that a very important measure of this is to measure totally uh, on general idea of student engagement in the school, of learning opportunities, and whether you feel like students are satisfied 
and are they being developed? So I think overall we need to think about the success in a broader sense. And also education, by the way, uh, the education bottom line is much harder to measure than the, you know, something the profit of a business. It takes much longer to show whether what you've learned, what you've helped is, you know, successful. So, you know, for me, I just come down to something very simple. You know, my own children go to school, so I, I always, you know, ask basically, are they still interested? Are they curious? Are they interested in pursuing something different, something new? Uh, do they feel confident about themselves? Do they feel they have the right, they have the privilege to be different, to be creative? You know, at the same time, are they becoming a good person? You know, in the sense that are they become moral and ethical? Uh, do they take social responsibilities? So, uh, Peggy, you asked in the chat um, to hear more about uh, globalism. I think there are two pretty full chapters in the book that you'll really enjoy in that regard. And I'd like to give bonus points to anybody who can help identify. Within the last two months, I've read from somebody, I think it may have been Neil Postman, but I can't remember, this idea of how we like to put things in boxes and create systems. And Yong, as I read this portion of the book, I had this feeling that there's this philosophical tension. And the tension is between our desire to systematize, to, to create a system which ensures success, and the necessity for diversity and for local activities and for uh, creativity and passion at the local level. So uh, one of the things I kept thinking about was how much of the of of the uh, need to systematize, which which I think uh, in, you know in large part creates some of the the damage or dangers here. Um, are are we are we still keeping when we talk about this, and and how much should we be looking at this as more sort of local solutions and allowing people more local control? Well, I think, you know, to me, uh, again, uh, my background says that because I've lived in a system that's very systematized, very standardized, centralized, that's trying to move away, and it's finding to be difficult. Uh, I'm, uh, in this, I'm a, <clears throat> someone will call me, I'm, I'm an auto-liberal, you know, in that sense, uh, because I think uh, if we trust educators, uh, we trust the local parents, and a lot of times, I think I would say, as much local control as possible. And however, uh, I think, as I just wrote them on my blog, uh, like national or common or even international curriculum standards when they're out there as professional guides, professional tools for teachers will be I mean, useful, but never trying to enforce or impose them uh, on the students through standardized testing. And, but however, there's some other issues that maybe need to systematize. For example, funding. I think in this, in this country, a lot of inequality comes from through funding. If you look at, so why can't we have some way, some mechanism to fund you know, schools equally, to fund, you know, to give school equal resources to those things? And so that maybe need to systematize. But also at the same time, you know, like uh, uh, technology solutions and resources, I think uh, those needs to be more available, you know, just for economy of scale. So it really generally depends. But I think when it comes down to uh, education, the, the core business of education, that is uh, teaching, learning, interacting with students, I think it needs to be very local. You build on the strength of each community, 
do it on the strength of a teacher, do it on the strength of students. Again, I would focus on the strength movement to say to capitalize on that strength. You know, uh, sometimes you know when I write about I'm against national standards uh, because now the standards are made only in math and literacy. People think I'm against math and literacy. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm not. You know, I, I'm trying to say, uh, you know, if p people are strong, people like to pursue that by all means, but do not use you know math or literacy as a reason to hold back students who may have strength in other areas and who actually, by the way, literacy and math, the basic literacy and math skills, people will be able to develop uh, later on and if they you know, do this in the school, but also at the same time for the schools who are really, really in trouble, I think we should have different solutions to them than trying to apply uh, solutions to them and to other places or you know, vice versa. So it looks to me like both Gordon and, and Maureen um, have um, had this kind of knee-jerk reaction, and I'll call it such, that uh, local standards would lead toward ideology or uh, uh, creationism. So is this a common theme that people are afraid that local control would lead to religious teachings? Uh, I have heard about that. I think uh, it's it's quite possible. You know, I'm, I'm you know if you look at uh, uh, what's happening now, the debate in Texas over who gets into the social studies book, what happened in Kansas, all those things. It definitely happens. But I am not sure a national standard and will actually be able to drive away those religious teachings. And that's that's you know if you look at right now what we're making standards and uh, the. In the U.S. right now, we have you know the, the Common Core standards by the National Governors Association and the Chief uh, the Council of Chief State School Officers. They're not actually into this controversial area at all. Uh, if you look at uh, you know social studies, I'm not sure if ever there will be a common standards for the you know, for the nation for for the U.S. in social studies because it's become so controversial. Uh, that's why actually another reason. Uh, I'm against uh, standardized testing because what's been tested is often what can be tested. Uh, therefore, people agree about to those things. Uh, and actually, now even science has become more controversial. Now. I've heard people protesting to the PISA test because people have different views. That, for example, about global warming, and it's more of a moral uh, attitude rather than scientific understanding. So there's a lot of discussion. Yes, there is a concern, but at the same time, I think uh, we may have just some respect that. And those the communities who will st uh, stick to those teaching, uh, they may actually reject uh, national standards, common standards anyway in, in that regard. So I'm going to give the floor to, to uh, Gordon when we start the Q&A in just a minute. But before we do so, I wanted to ask just sort of quickly, how has the book been received? And what kind of comments have you gotten about it? Well, I have uh, got uh, so far actually uh, all good comments. I guess those people who do not like it and never write to me, so <laughs> maybe you don't get that. The, I, I guess that happens. I have not really had uh, uh, really received any bad comments uh, in that sense. A uh, lot of people uh, said they know they like it, uh, but people I think um, um, some people may have. Like you said, I think grasp part of the message. A lot of people um, 
take the message as that I'm just against standards. I'm criticizing the U.S. current education reform, and lots of people miss what I'm trying to point out where we need to go. It is capitalized on the strength. And, uh, you know, I think that's one chapter I, I talk about why globalization, why technology has enabled us to take advantage of our little, tiny, unique strength that was not used to be valuable. You know, I give examples of uh, a lot of, you know, uh, serendipitous happenings on the Internet. Uh, you know, for example, Steve, your show is a good example. You have talent, now you can make it happen, and which before you may have to apply to Fox News or some CNN to get a job like this. And, uh, and you, I don't know you, how talented you are, you might be turned on by them, because those uh, are dominating the large networks uh, can only have so many talents, and now it's possible. So that's one thing I think we have to begin to trust that individual talents, no matter how strange, how bizarre they are to you, they may actually become valuable and useful. And so that's one thing. Another thing is I think I was focused on uh, the globalization and technology piece. Most people did not really pick up on the directions uh, I was pointing to. I think a lot of people really enjoyed what I wrote about China and how that should be used as an example uh, to say U.S. should not go down that road. I guess it's also because a lot of people have been uh, uh, reading uh, reports about China uh, interpreted by people who actually I don't think have a true understanding of the educational system in a cultural context. Well, it's sure, uh, it's sure really nice to hear your perspective. So we've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, Gordon, you asked a couple of questions that I did capture in the chat. I wonder if you might not want to take the microphone. Um, I'm going to give you the microphone now, and I don't know if you're set up to do that. Um, but if you're not, just type in the chat, and I'll repeat your questions. Or if you'd like to take the mic, you can now just click on the larger microphone icon in the audio area to do so. And I'm not seeing Gordon respond. There we go. There we go. Now. Hey, Gordon. Okay, let's try it again. Are you listening? Yes. Well, I think okay. that Gordon. Well, I I was just saying that I did enjoy your book, and I I wasn't really challenging the overall standards, but um, and your comments, but I was, um, I guess I was speaking for the less advantaged uh, school districts around the country that um, standards would tend to even the playing field that we still have a lot of work yet to do and also to make sure that a public education didn't involve um, ideologies that might be best left for private schools or uh, parochial schools. Uh, yeah, I, I think that in that sense they um I don't really have a good answer to that uh, because um, uh, I re realize, you know, different communities uh, in they have their local control and the local school boards can make such decisions. Uh, I think uh, the, however, the, the the state, I think most state laws may have in that says certain things, you know, should not be included. I think the U.S. has tried to maintain, you know, the separation of church and the state, and we've done that. So, but that does not necessarily mean we need a, a standardized curriculum for what to teach. We can tell them what not to be included uh, in, this, in, in the curriculum. So that's a way to really address the issue rather than making standardized curriculum uh, for everybody. 
So um, I'm wondering, Maureen, if you wanted to chime in, or Gordon, you can keep going. No, I'm just agreeing with what he's saying, that, but we don't have a punitive reviewer at the current levels in a national or state government. So, uh, but I could see that that might be a the buffer that we might need. So pass it up, pass the mic on. Thanks, Gordon. Um, so, Maureen, did you want to did you want to chime in, or anybody else? This is a time when you can ask a question. If you'd like to do so, you can raise your hand. Use the hand with the green up Maureen, arrow. Maureen, there's no mic. Uh -huh. uh, so, Maureen, please feel free to put a question in the chat, or you, I mean, I think you were you had some feelings about this as well, uh, and maybe they've been answered. But if not, please feel free to to continue the conversation. So, you know, I'm, this is particularly interesting to me because I, I feel like there is this dynamic tension uh, between uh, wanting to systematize, and and nobody's figured out what uh, what that reference was. That I'm I'm still willing to reward in some way for someone who can tell me what educational writer it was that talked about our need to put things in boxes so we don't have to think about them anymore, and the need for diversity. And um, and local control, and I'm curious because I, uh, e even in Maureen, in your statement, I still I still hear this uh, desire to mandate from above, and am wondering, um, uh, you know, you know, in a system of local choice and, and control, do you not have the ability to go somewhere else or to uh, voice your opinion um, if you don't agree, and isn't that valuable? Uh, and it, wouldn't it be more Valuable to have that passion and interest at the local level than it is to have something mandated from above. Well, I think you know uh, the uh, uh, I, I appreciate actually the, this perspective, especially from Moran and a couple of others mentioned uh, about uh, this uh, the the negative uh, consequence of local control. Uh, I guess I put a lot of faith in the professionalism of teachers. Uh, which again, that faith may may be wrongly placed in some cases, but by and large, we we trust them. So what I was hoping, uh, we would have a much better educated teaching force, uh, much more global, more globally minded, much more scientifically minded in that sense. Uh, so that would be uh, funding uh, for the minds of our children for public education. Uh, I think uh, uh, that this is another thing that I want to clarify is that I have a. A lot of faith in democracy. I've always believed in, in the U.S. So uh, I, I trust the power of individual teachers, and so in that way, uh, what I'm criticizing a lot of a uh, few po polit uh, political leaders, uh, policymakers, or reformers trying to push education in what I think is the wrong way. I also have a, a kind of a problem with the, uh, our own uh, teaching force, our educators. I don't think our educators have really truly stood up uh, over against this, we have given up our rights as individuals to say, yeah, we think we're true professionals, we deserve to be respected in our classroom to give this space. And uh, and of course, you know, as in any profession, there are a few uh, who are not qualified, who do not want to work, but uh, I, I still think you know, we, there's no reason to apply a rule to punish the, all of them just because of the few. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, like, uh, the U.S. has never been a perfect system, but so far democracy seems to be the best one of what we have. So I'd like to trust individuals, you know, I think Maureen and a couple of others, is to say, can we have a better prepared teaching force? Our teachers would stand up to help actually defend what public education is. 
also at the same time, I think I'm reminded uh, of uh, what Neil Postman once said: Public education does not serve a public, but it creates a public. So in essence, I think it's really incumbent on us to uh, produce a citizen, uh, a citizenry that would help defend uh, the democracy and also help become supporting this. I know I'm quite idealistic in many ways, and uh, which uh, again I, I I'm proud to be like that. I'm in you know, many ways I think I'm a, a dreamer. Uh, that what got uh, got me actually out of my village, and I'm trying to dream. I think in education in the U.S. at this time, we need a lot of people to to be able to dream and to challenge in a bigger sense. And I know any kind of proposal we put out there will have small details, mechanics that we cannot resolve. And that's why I think uh, this book did, was not come out to serve as really a practical guide in the classrooms, but really more of a philosophical reorientation and providing information uh, as such. Well, I, I, this is so fun for me, and I, I think we need to move on to global um, because there are a couple of people who have asked here, you know, if, if you might not actually talk a little bit more about uh, your ideas about the value of being global-minded in a system like ours. Do you, do you want to talk about examples that you've seen where you feel like uh, there has been a really good um, teaching? And I know you mentioned a particular school in China that has the two different classrooms. Is that worth talking about? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a program. Uh, I actually uh, started this. I, I, I developed this program. It's called Education for Global Citizenship. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun when I was playing with this several years ago. They would build a school in China to, uh, to try this curriculum. And now there are several schools in the U.S. who have adopted the program. The program is different from a simple, you know, a typical immersion, language immersion. Because my goal is, I think, in the age of globalization, is not only to prepare linguistically competent uh, students, that means people who can speak two languages, but culturally competent, that means those people who, can, who will be comfortable living uh, in different cultures and interacting with people who have different perspectives, different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. But also, I was experimenting in this program, the two different pedagogies. Uh, that's why I call this program called bicultural, bilingual, and dual pedagogy. You know, as much as I criticize education in China, I have to uh, say that uh, instruction in China, classroom instruction, actually is done very effectively. Uh, that's why actually I, I wrote my little blog today called The Sesame Seed, the Sesame versus Watermelon. Uh, in, in China, people used to say uh, Sesame uh, refers something small, uh, and Watermelon refers something big. In my case, I would say instruction is the Sesame, education is the Watermelon. I think China does instruction very well uh, in certain subjects. That's why you know, we, when we copy Singaporean math, our students do improve. Uh, so in many ways, so that's why in this program we also try to bring the uh, two pedagogies together in the same uh, uh, school. That is, the, the for half day, the students spend time in a Chinese classroom, a sport in Chinese curriculum taught by a Chinese teacher in Mandarin Chinese language, and the next half day, the, child, the children move to the other classroom. That's more typical American uh, um, uh, classroom. And we have a school like this in China, and uh, we have uh, several schools here in the US. We start from kindergarten, and it's seeing good results. That's one way of getting children to be uh, developed cultural fluency, this global mindedness. And there's other uh, models like this. Uh, actually, I, I was just back from a school called Oxford uh, um, School in Michigan, Oxford, Michigan, and Oxford, England. And the school has this vision to become a global model. So they're starting 
uh, they call it foreign language, the fifth core. Every, everyone is involved in a foreign language from very early on. And actually, they are maintaining a very strong art and, uh, art and music program. So the, the, I think what, what's important in this global piece is that it's more expand our thinking. It's not us versus them. It's we are part of them. And that global mind will not only help us economically, um, or financially in terms of as a country, we view others as opportunities, as potential partners, not necessarily as competitors. I mean, this is especially true in Michigan, you know, if we view others as only competitors. And actually, we have been doing that. Therefore, we close our borders, we close our mind. So a lot of business opportunities pass through Michigan, go to other places. And the second also is will be useful for our, our children to think themselves as they can work anywhere and they can be uh, a global worker, a global citizen. And actually, even if they retain local or re, uh, stay local, they still have to deal with people from other places. And if you reduce this to some simple uh, uh, abilities or knowledge or perspective, it's very much like multiculturalism. That means we do not uh, simply judge people based on where they are from, based on their origin but rather open our mind, treat everybody as a fellow member of the humanity. So that's really what globalism is. And another part of globalism is that we recognize distance in terms of its impact on human activities has almost died. You know, like now with how many people are now in this show, you know, 33 people coming perhaps from many different places. In that way, we affect each other even though we live thousands of miles apart. So you need to understand this uh, interdependence and mutual impact despite of this traditionally, uh, I mean, uh, separation imposed by geographical distances. So maybe there's a way to bring this full circle and to say that um, it's hard to imagine a system which uh, standardizes on uh, a set of exams providing the environment for the innovation that will be required to figure out how to be globally connected in those ways. Uh, uh, Say that again, Steve, please. Well, <laughs> so you're the expert. I should not be doing the summation. But it occurred to me that this kind of brings us back to the main point, which is in a system, uh, uh, sort of a no child left behind a testing environment, it would be hard to imagine the kind of entrepreneurial teaching activities that we hope will evolve and begin to develop that show us how we can provide these kinds of classrooms. Well, exactly. I think that's, thank you. that's a very good summary because I think now uh, we have several really tasks in front of us as educators and all of us. Number one, we have to fight as public citizens. That against this kind of policy, we know from our professional judgment uh, are going to actually ruin our children's uh, future and our education. So I think we have to stand up to deal with this policy to say this is wrong. We have to work on it. Uh, uh, we have to go against it. And I think uh, we, the U.S. has proven that it's a democracy that can happen. And number two is to say, okay, since we live under in this context, we haven't changed the policy yet, and how can we still work hard uh, stay true to our own heart and still provide this environment, either as parent, as educator, to our children. I'm, I'm trying to protect that, uh, protect my own children from this impact, and I wrote about that in my book as well. And number three is how we can 
at the same time, if we cannot do this in schools, how can we still protect our children outside of schools, not to cut programs, after-school programs, not to uh, force children only to uh, read the books that matter in a, on testing? Well, it's really been a delight to have you here. Uh, um, I'm going to clap. I'm using the little clapping hand to clap for Dr. Zhao and, and just express my appreciation for both the book, Catching Up and Leading the Way, or Leading the Way, and you're taking the time tonight to, to visit with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Gordon wanted to know uh, if you would share a link with where we can read more about your curriculum. And also, he asked earlier, are you speaking at any conferences anywhere that people could go to see you um, within the next year? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I do a lot of, uh, um, uh, 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 let me type in address for you, uh, Gordon, first. You can find some of this. You can feel free to email me as well. Go to this website. We have some programs called EGC. You can read the book as well. Uh, I do a lot of uh, uh, presentations. I'm going to actually Denver at uh, the uh, Colorado. Most state uh, um, administrators organization or school boards association uh, invite me. I go to their uh, present a lot. Um, if you're interested, you can uh, follow me on my Twitter. I, I often announce that. And, and also, I really encourage all of you to try to uh, get on my website, read my blogs. I try to write a blog every week uh, responding or bringing new evidence or bringing new research findings from other places, from China and from the U.S., uh, commenting on a lot of current issues in education, globalization, and educational technology. And the web address uh, is either, yes, I will be in San Antonio. Uh, my web address is simple. And there you can find out how to follow me on, on my Twitter. And also, uh, for a lot of you, if you are interested in other things too, because I, I, I run, I develop these programs. I also develop uh, software for learning. For example, one of the things uh, I'm, I'm leading the development is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, the MMORPG called Zong for uh, teaching Chinese culture and language. You can, it's free, you can play it, and we got about uh, nearly 20,000 registered users, and we're still developing this. It's like a virtual uh, you know, uh, island, a virtual action tour to China, but on the way you learn Chinese and Chinese culture. Thank you, Jenna. Yong, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. We'll, uh, we'll let you go, Yang, because you've uh, committed an hour, and that's plenty. Those who would like to stick around for a little post-show chat, we'll stay for about 15 minutes. Um, you can talk about anything you'd like to or follow up on things that were said. But we do want to give you the opportunity, Yang, to, um, to get back to other things. I think you're on Eastern Standard Time, right? So it's late yes. enough for you to, to bow out politely. Uh, so again, many thank thanks. Thank you very much, everyone. enjoyed it. Thanks so much, and I will go ahead and uh, and let him go. But those, uh, if you would like, to, if anybody wants to stick around, I thought we had some interesting conversation tonight, and we can keep. Going. We still don't know who said the quote, although it looked like uh, Peggy did a yeoman's job of uh, finding one that was close. I want to. I'm thinking it was Neil Postman or Howard Rheingold, and but I know I I I believe that I actually read it, 
in the, not that it was a guest who was on the show, but that it was the way in which we um, use, uh, we try and put things, systematize them to put them in a box so we don't have to worry about them and how that can be positive, um, but also how um, it, it, um, it does mean that we're trying, we're not dealing with sometimes issues that are core and critical. Um, that, that are valuable just to deal with, and and I and again I'm uh, you know I'm so curious about this because I have friends you know who have a variety of different educational circumstances, and I I know that there are responses and reactions to um, you know creationist issues and the like, and we've seen that in our local community, but I also know that that um, I know people who've gone to uh, you know private Jewish schools and have had what I would consider to be a great education, not one I would give my children but still a very valuable education and uh, find that uh, sometimes our need to standardize um, seems to me to put us in a position where we may lose some of the best benefits of um, the kind of diversity that Young um, Zhao talks about here and talks about that make um, the United States such a unique place to live. So any thoughts on that or anything else? Don't feel you need to stick around. Um, oh, does anybody know what the uh, Olympic schedule is going to be like and how it might impact um, these different interviews? Peggy, I think you're going to really like the book. Uh, again, like I said in the beginning, I think I prejudged it and thought that uh, you know that the idea that we might lead the way was a little bit naive and maybe an overly optimistic view of American education. And that was before actually opening the book and reading it. And um, I, I think I, I've come away from the book really convinced about the importance of diversity and, um, and the kind of nurturing of individual talents that is imperfect. There's no question that it leads to less than perfect situations, but that as a whole, the uh, the fact that we do allow individuals to grow. And he, there's a great quote in here that we didn't talk about tonight, and I'll see if I can find it, but where he talks about how a teacher, when a teacher talked to him about children being like popcorn. You never know when they're going to pop. And that in our system that we allow for students to pop or get it or flower at a variety of different stages, and we never um, we never block that off. Whereas if they take a test early on in their educational career, like they do in some of these countries, that, that they would never have the opportunity to flower later in an area because they were already on a track. And, and I'm hopefully I'm going to find it here, but I thought that was um, you know pretty brilliant and, and made me appreciate more, even within the imperfections um, in our system, that, that as a whole, uh, he's recognizing coming from uh, a different country that um, that uh, that he didn't have those opportunities, or that he might not have had them. And I do believe you're going to really like the chapters on globalism. Jen, I really appreciated a couple of the comments that you made as well. Uh, and, and earlier on, you asked a question, or I think it was you, um, 
you know, why do we need, there was, there was, it was this question of a national curriculum and why do we need it? Yet some could argue that some of us have still not bloomed yet. I know that my own father, who was uh, you know considered very successful in his field, and he didn't really um, really start his his real education until he was uh, I think maybe 24, 25, uh, maybe 23. But but still, you know, after high school, uh, really was not. He ended up being dean of admissions at Stanford and then dean of admissions at Princeton, and has often said that he would never have accepted himself into college because when he left high school, he was not. Uh, interested really in being a good student. And I think, Skip, that fear is definitely a big part of the story in the book, or at least the, the degree to which we allow fear to drive our educational discussions. I'm just going to be so discouraged if I cannot find that quote. I need to go back and look at Howard's um, Smart Mobs book again. Maybe I read it there. Can't wait for uh, Mark Bauerlein on Thursday. I think that will be really fun. Thanks for coming, Skip. Okay, so it sounds like maybe we're done. Thanks everybody for being here. Those of you who are listening to the recording, sure appreciate your your downloading and listening to it. Um, really fun night, and um, really glad to have had uh, Young Zhao on tonight. Take care, everybody. Good night.